You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, where we're celebrating the decriminalization of outdoor barbecues after more than two years of them being illegal under the government's COVID restrictions. Elsewhere in the world, though, it is fair to say things are heating up in a far less hospitable way. And it can be summed up by one word introduced to the geopolitical lexicon in the 1950s and peaked in usage in the year 1965. That word is... Brinkmanship. The art or practice of pursuing a dangerous policy to the limits of safety before stopping, especially in politics. On Tuesday this week, we heard this particular quote from the US Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman after meeting with her South Korean and Japanese counterparts. And we will use the full range of US defense capabilities to defend our allies, including nuclear, conventional and missile defense capabilities. Her comments were directed at North Korea, following reports it's preparing to test a nuclear weapon in a week that began with the South Korean Navy firing shots at a North Korean merchant vessel that it said had crossed the maritime border, to which the Korean People's Army replied with a few warning shots of their own. Then on Wednesday, we watched as news organisations around the world shared footage of Russian President Vladimir Putin watching calmly from a control room seemingly inspired by a villain from a James Bond film as his soldiers, submarines and missile bases simulated a strategic nuclear attack. Elsewhere, we had news that the US Justice Department announced it had charged two individuals it claims are Chinese intelligence operatives. The charges are for trying to obstruct the prosecution of a Chinese telecommunications company. The particular company involved was not named, but do feel free to browse our previous podcasts about the US relationship and approach to Huawei. In the Philippines, a lawmaker has just reintroduced legislation giving strictly designated sea lanes and air routes for Chinese ships and aircraft passing through the region. And in the increasingly not very united kingdom, this week's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, looks set to announce he's going to act on his plan to shut down the 30 Confucius Institutes across the country, all part of his campaign labelling China the largest threat to Britain and the world's security and prosperity this century. In this week's episode, you're going to hear two very familiar voices on this podcast. It's been somewhat lost in the headlines this week, but today is one week since the Biden administration launched its most aggressive and far-reaching sanctions yet on China's access to technology. But these sanctions don't just apply to China, mind you. The US has announced these restrictions apply to every American citizen, every American company, and every other citizen and company in the world. And if you've ever heard the phrase any port in a storm, quite the opposite is happening in Germany right now, with the announcement that China's massive shipping company Costco has been given the green light to buy up a major stake in Germany's largest port. And that's happened in a week where German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has announced he's flying to Beijing to meet with Xi Jinping, just days after the 27 ministers of the European Union met for a marathon meeting discussing how they would decrease their reliance on China for technology and the minerals used to make that technology work. All of this as we approach what promises to be a very exciting G20 Leaders Summit in just under three weeks' time. Let's get amongst it. 
It is one week since the Biden administration's surprise attack on China's access to technology, having given two weeks' notice that it intended to pursue global restrictions on exports of semiconductor technology and all the technologies related to the production of semiconductors to China. In the four years of escalating trade war and bans under the Trump administration, this was perhaps the single most aggressive action taken to target Chinese companies and limit their ability to innovate, develop or manufacture new products, ranging across the board from electric vehicles to artificial intelligence and supercomputers. And thus, one week after this policy took effect, I've got one of the original founding members of this podcast, SEMP technology editor Joe Sin, back in the studio to bring us up to date on how these regulations are affecting China and Chinese businesses. Welcome back to the studio, Joe Sin. Thank you, Jared. So let me start by asking for a reality check. It wasn't just the speed of these restrictions being announced and the fact the US appeared to do this with zero consultation with other countries involved. Josin, am I reading too much into the timing of these restrictions coming one week, a fortnight before the 20th Party Congress in Beijing? Well, I think the timing is quite interesting. And we can see one important message from the 20th Party Congress is about technology self-sufficiency. So you can see China kind of uh, was in anticipation of more technology restrictions from the United States. But still... This new update announced on October 7th was still, I think, caught China's semiconductor industry off guard because few people had expected the regulations to be so extensive and so big. Previously, we've already seen uh, the United States have been targeting particular companies. We've seen them targeting Huawei technologies. SMIC is also targeted. And some products, specific chip products, for instance, H100 by NVIDIA, are on the list of export control. But I think very few people in China expected the United States have launched you know, a 190 page of updated regulation of this export control. So this is really something that the Chinese semiconductor industry hadn't been prepared for. And when I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago with our colleague in New York, Mark Manier, he said this was brought in with such speed in order to not give Chinese companies the chance to stockpile semiconductors. But again, I see this timing just before the 20th Party Congress. Again, am I reading too much into that? Uh, no, I think, I think you're right. Because from the US side, I think it's kind of widely accepted that the Biden administration has finally made its mind, made a decision that you know, the strategic considerations must overweight the commercial interests. And this is also something that the Chinese side has been thinking. You know, you know the, the U.S. is trying to contain China's technology advancement, but at least there are some room for negotiations, for compromises, and to work together. But following this regulation, I think for most of the people, they realize like, ah, it's, uh, it's actually very, very little room for compromise. And the, basically, the United States had declared a technology war against China, and what China can do is just to, to fight back. Well, let me just turn briefly to what happened at the 20th Party Congress. Our colleagues on the China desk have spent the last fortnight forensically analyzing what was said, what was done, who sat where, who said what. But what about on the technology front, Josine? Did you pick up any clear signals, any, any even hints of Beijing's responding to these controls? Uh, yes. 
it's not about specific policies. In the 20th Party Congress, it's about philosophy, ideology, concepts, guiding principles rather than specific measures. So the message is very, very clear. China must rely on itself for key technologies because if China relies on the United States, which is now increasingly seen as unreliable or even hostile party, so China will have its trouble. So you can see this. You know, uh, yesterday, President Xi led all the new leadership to Yan'an, where the very idea of self-sufficiency came from for the Chinese Communist Party. You know, when in the 19, uh, I think it's 1939, when Chairman Mao was leading his uh, Red Army in Yan'an, all the external supplies being cut off. So he famously said, you know, we have to rely on our own hands to get enough food in the closing. And this idea has been deeply rooted in the Chinese Communist Party. Every time when there is uh, external threats or there are hostile environment, the Chinese leadership will say, we have to rely on ourselves. I always love speaking with you, Joe Sin, because I always get a bit of a history lesson. But can I respond with... Another bit of Chinese history that involves the US, it was only a couple of years ago we made a podcast about that moment after the Nixon administration where specific Chinese academics were brought to the US to introduce them to technology and give this, you know, to jumpstart China's technology industries. Food is one thing, technology is a whole other thing, you know, and we've seen that unlike the American-Soviet Cold War, the Chinese and American economies are entwined. So let me turn to the impact of what these restrictions have done. Just over a month ago, the tech desk published a story about a record number of Chinese companies in the semiconductor industry going out of business. We're a week into these new restrictions, Josian. What's been the impact? What have you been hearing back from your reporters, from your team? Uh, well, the impact is certainly um, because in the last two weeks, uh, really, really crazy. And I think most of the parties being affected are rushing to do some damage control. For instance, for the U.S. companies, as you can see, the LAM Research and KLA, the supplier of equipments, and they immediately pulled out their teams from the Chinese facilities because there is one restriction on involvement of U.S. persons, which is defined as U.S. citizens or U.S. green card holders, to work for the Chinese advanced semiconductor facilities. So they have to. It's it's still very vague. I think lots of law firms are wasting no time to find out the details. But for the companies, because the compliance risks are so so big, so their knee-jerk reaction is just to minimize the risk. Interestingly, it's the same for the, for the Chinese companies. Although, strategically speaking, we know that the war is declared. There is no compromise. Say, the U.S. will give up its containment on China's technology advancement. But for specific companies, they are still looking for rooms for at least for some compromises. For instance, for these 31 companies putting on the unverified list, which if they do not satisfy the U.S. side in terms of information of the end users, they will be moved to the entity list, which would be much more serious uh, results. So at least like one Chinese equipment maker is making contact with the U.S. officials and to see if they can comply with this. And, and uh, there, there's a track record that there are many Chinese companies being put on this unverified list, but a few months later, they were removed from that list if they provide enough end-user information to the U.S. side saying, you know, we're not selling anything to the military or uh, civil use. So you can see this is uh, from the corporate side. 
basically everyone is looking at risk and is trying to do some uh, immediate damage control. Uh, I will put that. And from the Chinese government side, it's more interesting because, of course, uh, Chinese foreign ministry, Chinese Ministry of Commerce, saying this is a uh, technology bullying. China is very unhappy with that. But uh, in a broad picture, I would say the Chinese government response is very, very uh, restrained. Uh, you know, China is not even threatening to retaliate. Uh, you know, remember in the in the trade war times, uh, you know, China will change its rules, launch its own trustworthy list, and even target several U.S. companies as as retaliation. But for this time, in terms of actions, they just stay uh, relatively muted. Were you surprised by this? As you say, we've documented here in this podcast, you know, the tit for tat, you know, there'd be one announcement from Trump administration and 24 hours later, there'd be a response from MOFA or from, you know, somewhere within Beijing. It's almost been a deafening silence, so to speak, coming back from Beijing. Has that been a surprise to you? Not really, because if you look at what the Chinese government can do, it's actually quite limited. And of course, uh, you know, Chinese government has a priority of the ensuring 20th party Congress and do not want to escalate this kind of uh, situation. But also, if you look at the real situation of China, what it can do, can it like really sanction Intel saying you're not allowed to send any chips to China or to sanction NVIDIA or, or even to sanction, let's say, TSMC, saying you're not allowed to do any business with Chinese partners, your plants in uh, Nanjing will be shut down. It will do no good for China. It actually, it will hurt China. So the policy choices for the Chinese government for now is actually quite limited. That's why some extreme voices are calling China to retaliate in other areas, not, not in particularly like semiconductor industry, but look at like what areas the U.S. is relying on. Uh, China, for instance, China may have very big influence on supplies of certain metals. And maybe China can say, you know, if, if you don't do this, we're going to stop uh, supply of these special metals uh, to, to the United States. Of course, this is a kind of like wide thinking, it's far-fetched idea, some crazy ideas from uh, researchers. There's a long way before, uh, you know, these kind of ideas were turning into actual policies. And I have to ask you, you talk about some of the more extreme voices and ideas being aired in response to these restrictions. Has there been any heightened discussion about the PLA going across the Taiwan Strait to a self-ruled island that manufactures a whole lot of semiconductors? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I think that's almost a, kind of like a fantasy, like say PLA is going to attack Taiwan just for the chips. Well, let me talk about the complexity of geopolitical relationships for smaller nations caught between the US and China. Perhaps there's no better example of that than South Korea. You know, after Taiwan, it's one of the biggest, most advanced manufacturers of semiconductors in the world. Its biggest economic trading partner is China, but it's also home to roughly 28,000 American soldiers who are there as part of the security agreement signed in the wake of the Korean War. How is this new South Korean government navigating this most tricky geopolitical technological quandary? Yeah, it will be very interesting to see what they would do. In the previous decades, uh, particularly in the first years of the new century, you know, they, they have this kind of like, in terms of economy, we do trade with China. In terms of security, we rely on the United States. And apparently this uh, is not going to work anymore. So they have to make choices. And uh, you know, this week, SK Hynix, the South Korea semiconductor giant, at its analyst conference call, one of the executives said, you know, in extreme situations, if we can't maintain our operation of a China plant, we have to sell it off or, or move it back to South Korea. And of course, when the news came out, it is uh, 
it is pretty big. And the company immediately denied, saying, we have no plan to close our China plant. For SK Hynix, almost like a quarter of the output from the Wuxi plant, which it has started building since 15 years ago. And also, this is a very, very good relationship. The local government really, really supported the South Korea project there. Last year, they even opened a primary school in name of SK Hynix. There's also SK Hynix hospitals, just to make the area more livable, or more, you know, more like home for South Korea engineers and the executives. And even during the, the, the most strict COVID-19 controls, when China's flights from the outside world are cut off, you know, Wuxi has, the local government has arranged chartered flights to fly in South Korea engineers. You can see how, how much you know, the Chinese government is putting resources and also showing like long-term commitment for this relationship. And for SK Hynix, of course, it is also making a lot of money. When it needs to upgrade its plant in Wuxi, actually, South Korea investors don't have to put money from their own pocket. They can always borrow from the Chinese bankers, you know, from China Development Bank and other Chinese banks, so they set up this whole new, very big second phase plant. And also, for the Wuxi government, they are so keen to develop this SK Hynix project. They built up a whole industrial park with, of course, the South Korea plant at the center. So this is a very, very strong kind of economic relationship, and it will be very, very painful if SK Hynix can no longer upgrade its plants. The problem will be the same for Sansam in, in Xi'an. For now, of course, they have already obtained the one-year grace period. So during this one-year period, they can still import uh, needed U.S. equipments. But like, what happened after uh, 12 months? Are they going to do this like every year? Or if one day the U.S. government said, enough is enough, I'm no longer giving you new licenses, what they can do? I mean, as we all know, technology is upgrading very quickly. And if your product cannot catch up with the latest technology, you can be easily defeated in the marketplace. So for them, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's really lose-lose. Uh, <laughs> so China loses. China loses uh, important foreign investor projects. And for SK Hynix, uh, they have to uh, make very, very painful business decisions. Very costly. Justin, a year ago, we were doing a podcast about the global shortage of semiconductors. Here we are a year later, and we're seeing reports of oversupply of everyone from TSMC, share drop, all of these kinds of things. This unilateral move by the Biden administration to target China in this way, how is it going to affect the global industry going forward? What's your, your forecast? Well, it's going to be very bad and also going to be have like broad implications because the globalized value chain is not by the charity of the U.S. companies. You know, even after, after Nixon or after China's entry into WTO, they moved the manufacturing to China not to do charity, right? They, they want to cut their costs. And it's exactly the iPhone, right? It, it's designed in California, but it's manufactured in Zhengzhou. Because American workers don't want to spend a you know, full bank bed dormitory and share a bathroom with 20 other cool workers. But this is a condition that China can, can offer. And it's a minimum salary of like $500 a month and working 12 hours a day. So China, with its vast market, with its relatively cost advantages, and then becoming part of this global value chain of semiconductors. And then China, of course, is going to move up the technology ladder and is going to catch up on the technology side. 
And now the United States is no longer seen as a business interest, it's seen as a national security threat. And so I want to completely change the landscape. And this is about realignment of, as we can see, like tens of millions of jobs. And also, it's going to be very, very a long-term process. And so if every country is going to build up its own, say, semiconductor plants, et cetera, and of course, there will be oversupply. We can see like Japan, South Korea, now India, Singapore, Europe. Everyone is trying to say we, we have to have more control of the, of the value chain. And then it means there will possibly be loss of efficiency in a global perspective. If you're looking at us from the moon, you know, previously it's working pretty good. But now everything is going to be changed because the U.S. saying, no, we don't like the, um, the, <laughs> the old pattern. Of course, industry has cycles when people's demand for laptops, smartphones dropped after the, the COVID. Of course, there will be concerns uh, for these oversupply issues. But more importantly, it's a structure issue. It's about like the globalization become more fragmented and we're going to go back to the dark age that everyone is racing to the bottom. So this is really kind of worrying for the, for the, for the value chain. Well, your team has been working nonstop in Beijing, in Shanghai, in Shenzhen to report on these developments. We're, of course, going to follow that on SAP.com. Josine, as always, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jared. Now, before I take you to Brussels, I want to draw your attention to an interview our colleagues in Beijing published overnight with Germany's ambassador to China, Patricia Flohr. It's a wide-ranging interview, but there are some very specific mentions about the Sino-German relationship. Everything from the prospect of decoupling with China to why German warships are sailing through the Taiwan Strait and why the German government is talking about an Indo-Pacific strategy. The headline is... In her own words, German ambassador to China on economics, security, vaccines and Taiwan. You can find it on SEMP.com right now. Finbar Birmingham is the South China Morning Post's one-man European bureau based in Brussels. Bonjour and guten tag to you, Finbar. Salut. Let's start with the topic that's been front and centre on scmp.com in the past fortnight, China's 20th Party Congress. What kind of initial reaction from Europe's leaders about Xi Jinping's speeches have you seen and observed? I mean, there's not been that much direct reaction from the actual leaders. I mean, last week as the Congress was going on, we had the European Council meeting, which is a gathering of all the European Union's 27 leaders, prime ministers, presidents, etc., after that, we saw Ursula von der Leyen, who's the, the the president of the European Commission, talk about how China was drilling down on its direction of travel. You know, and this was the first time after the meeting that they discussed Beijing as, as a group of leaders for a full year. But in the conversations I've been having with diplomats and, and officials since then, I don't think that there were that many massive surprises that came out of the Congress. I think that it was quite clear what the direction of travel was in China before the Congress. However, the speed with which Xi Jinping has essentially installed his own people across the Politburo was a surprise to some. I guess they thought maybe things would be done a bit more gradually than that. So the sense I get from European officials and, and observers is that things that they were concerned about in China's economic and political policy are going to be drilled down on. What they consider to be China becoming more insular and less open as an economy, the sort of iron grip on the entire country that Xi Jinping has been growing since 2012. I think that they accept now that that's here to stay. 
And it, whereas I think there wasn't that much doubt about that before the conference, it was really hammered home by both his speech and also by what happened the following Sunday when the Politburo was was unveiled and that, you know, China's leadership was, was stocked with loyalists. So I guess not like a huge surprise, but I suppose some people are taken aback by the speed with which things will move. Last summer, a lot of diplomats were coming back from China to, for their summer holidays. And I had the chance to sit down with some of them. And there was a sense from those that are living in Beijing and seeing how things are going every day that they were seeing a different China to what was being projected from Brussels. Perhaps some policymakers in Brussels were wishing that a China that did not exist necessarily, maybe a China from 10 years ago was still there and was still laying dormant somewhere. And these diplomats were coming back and slapping their colleagues on the face and saying, look, you have to wake up and smell the coffee. This is the reality. And I do think that what we saw at the party congress is a manifestation of that. And perhaps it will lead to maybe a bit more realism about what sort of is modern China, what other European countries have to deal with. That said, those who were watching very closely probably weren't that surprised. But that, that's been the immediate, I suppose, response from those I've spoken to here in, in Europe. I'm glad you mentioned President Ursula von der Leyen there because I might remind you and our listeners that the last time you were on this podcast, it was mid-September and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen had just delivered her State of the Union speech with a special focus on Europe's developing relationship with China. In that time since, the United Kingdom is now up to its third Prime Minister. Xi Jinping is into his third term as President. And as you mentioned on Friday, 27 ministers from across Europe attended their first European Council meeting specifically about China in a year and engaged in a three-hour debate about their policy for China. What came out of that? Is there a sense of unity amongst Europe or is it indeed very European? Very European, I think definitely not that much unity. Very disparate views of China and how they should be approaching China but somehow they muddle on. It's very analogous for the union writ large. First thing to say about these discussion was all day. This was a two-day meeting. China was on the agenda. It wasn't just about China. And I was on Thursday being told by diplomats who were sort of swanning about the European Council building that we were not sure whether China would get an hour because there's just so many other things to discuss. You know, maybe we'll squeeze it in on lunch on Friday. And, you know, because at this meeting, they were also trying to thrash out a plan to reduce energy prices for European consumers. There was a big discussion to be had about Ukraine and future sort of financial and military support for the ongoing war. You know, there were other issues on the agenda, Iran supplying drones to Russia. So as always is the case, frustratingly for me, a China-focused journalist in Brussels, you can see it getting squeezed and squeezed, topic getting pushed and pushed further down the agenda. And so Thursday evening, I was sort of thinking to myself, well, are we going to have anything at all? But I was surprised by the fact that they got a good three-hour chat on China on the Friday it showed that they realised it was high time for a discussion. I mean, they hadn't talked about it for a full year as a group. In that time, a lot has changed. The war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion has sort of changed everything. It's certainly changed the perspective of how China is viewed in large parts of Europe. That said, I still don't think that there was a terrible amount of unity in how it's viewed. I mean, you do tend to see a bit more hawkishness the further east you go in the block and that's a generalization not a rule you have outliers of course but in western europe there is still a sense of wanting to partner with china on big things like climate change wanting to maintain close business ties at the same time as sort of holding it a bit more 
as a competitor and a rival those two prongs of the European Union's so-called triptych policy that was dictated in 2019. Afterwards, I was struck by how many of the different leaders used similar language. Schultz, Macron of France, Rutte of the Netherlands, De Croo from Belgium, Michel and von der Leyen from the European Council and Commission, all of them used the word naive. They said we can no longer be naive when it comes to China. Olaf Schultz, who's who's going to Beijing next week and who this week has been in the headlines, I'm sure we'll talk about this for okaying the sale of a part of a terminal, a stake in it in Hamburg Port to a Chinese state-owned company. He said we have, rough translation was, we have our eyes wide open. We know what we're dealing with here, but at the same time, we can't cut the ties with China. I was able to ask some questions to leaders from Estonia, Latvia, on the way into the council about Schultz's visit to China, and they were very against this. They thought, okay, well, you know, we're being told that we need to speak to China on one in one voice, in a single voice as a union. And then you've got Schultz freelancing on his on his trip to, to Beijing. And so there's a bit of disharmony there. So look, as ever, the, the European Union sort of doesn't really always agree on everything, doesn't really agree on much. And there are different shades of dovishness and hawkishness across the union with how they should view China. But I think it was important that they were able to at last sit down and discuss it. The tone of the debate was set by a paper which was drawn up by the European Union's Foreign Service, the External Action Service, which had circulated internally. I've got a copy of it here. That paper really recommended that the member states adopt a firmer line on China in terms of human rights and things like that, but also that they work really hard to reduce dependencies on China. It recommended that the European Union engage on a more material level with the Global South, quote unquote, I know a lot of people don't like that phrase, but on issues related to China, for example, the tone was very much, we can no longer go and speak to countries in Asia or Africa and sort of presume that they want to engage on human rights and that what we rock up and are selling as an ideal is enough. We you know the, the recommendation was we have to sort of compete with China at the level at which they're competing in Africa. We can no longer just say, okay, we're a democracy. China's not a democracy. Therefore, you should partner with us. So it was a very sort of clear-eyed document. The member states all seemed to agree on it. Certainly, that was the rhetoric anyway. But let's see what comes of this. Hopefully, there'll be more discussions a little bit sooner than 12 months. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on. We'll see what happens with the Schultz trip in November. Yeah, so anyway, it's been, it was interesting to, to observe that last week. Well, I'm glad you raised these travel plans by the German Chancellor Scholz because he's not the only European leader headed to Beijing, but he's indeed the first Western leader to head to Beijing to presumably congratulate Xi Jinping upon his historic third term. How is this being played with the German public? I think it's not really something that you can view in isolation. I think most people have no problem, well, most reasonable people have no problem with Olaf Scholz going to China. I think like... Anybody who thinks that you shouldn't have diplomatic ties with the world's second biggest economy is kind of ludicrous. But I think what has surprised some people is the fact that he's going with a business delegation. This is very much a signaling of the old Merkelite era of putting German industry first is still very much alive and kicking. And if you look at what's happening in Europe at the moment, that sort of attitude is coming under great scrutiny. Germany has been exposed for having huge dependency on Russian energy, which is being directly linked to the Merkelite foreign and economic policy that dominated the previous decade and a half. 
And so when you speak to EU officials and you know leaders from other member states, they're wondering, well, is Germany repeating the mistakes of the past decades? You know, there's so much rhetoric about reducing dependency on authoritarian states that maybe don't share the same values uh, about reducing your vulnerabilities and whether or not, you know, you can sort of argue that, of course, Schultz has to keep the business lobby happy. But I think for a lot of people, it's the optics of this that are quite jarring. On the same day as they had this discussion on China in Brussels at his press conference, Schultz confirmed that he was going with a group of businesses to Beijing. So on one hand, you have these leaders talking about the absolute crucial need to reduce your dependency on China. And in the second breath, he's confirming that he's going off with a whole load of industrialists to Beijing. Now, of course, he will say that he's going to raise prickly issues like human rights and and so on. He'll be under great pressure from his coalition partners, the Greens and the Free Democrats, to do so. But, you know, this hasn't happened in a, in a vacuum. You also have yesterday, we're speaking on Thursday, so on Wednesday, and the German cabinet approved a 24.9% stake of Hamburg, a terminal at Hamburg port to be sold to the Chinese shipping giant Costco or a, a subsidiary of it. You know, so these two stories have really made huge headlines in Germany, more so than I've seen a, on a China issue for, for some time. You've had some of the big German press, like the tabloid Bild, has really been getting stuck into this. And I mean, it's not too often that these issues creep to the surface. There's usually me and a couple of other folks plowing a fairly lonely furrow on uh, EU-China, but it it really has captured the imagination. If you look at the opinion polling on the Costco port purchase, 81%, this is in a poll done by the German magazine Der Spiegel, 81% of Germans were opposed to it. Initially, it was supposed to be a 35% stake, which would have given Costco some voting rights and so on. Yesterday, what they agreed with was a compromise of 24.9% stake, which would not allow any voting rights, which, you know, they're not allowed to increase their stake without another security review. But Schultz essentially pushed this through despite the warnings of six of his ministries, including the defence, the foreign and the economic ministries, that this would be a national security risk. There's some worries that Chinese companies with links to the government are building up their ownership of European ports. And again, people are pointing to the Russia situation and saying, did you learn nothing from this? You know, there's a reticent in Germany and large parts of Europe to put Russia and China in the same basket. I don't think like the majority of people are doing that, but there still is suspicion about being over-reliant or overexposed to authoritarian states. You know, a lot of people look at the so-called pro-Russian neutrality that China has staked out on the war in Ukraine, and they're wondering, well, why, why on earth would the German government be pushing, not just like green lighting, but pushing for a Chinese state-owned company to be allowed to buy a stake in the busiest port in Germany. The counter-argument is, if Germany doesn't do this, what's the message to global investors? Is it that Germany's closed for business? I spoke to one expert a little while ago who talked about the securitization of everything and how that was a dangerous path to go down. You know, I think people who are a little bit sort of balanced on this issue would point to the poor communication the lack of explanation from the government as to why it's approving this. Do they understand people's concerns? Why are they not heeding those concerns? Because, you know, I don't necessarily subscribe to the view that Olaf Schultz is wildly pro-China or that he 
necessarily, you know, but I think that there must be some reason that, you know, and it, it's it's possibly because he's former mayor of Hamburg as well. And this is a, something that people of Hamburg are quite keen on. You know, they want the port to be successful. Other European ports have had big investments from China and they see themselves as at a disadvantage if they're barred essentially from having the same funding. I don't see that argument or any argument really being explained by the German government. And I think that's part of the problem here. People are being allowed to essentially come up with their own theories as to why Olaf Scholz is pushing for this. And that's not really that healthy. I mean, he's often been, when I speak to German politicians and German experts, nobody really knows about what's going on inside his head. He's a bit of a black box. He surrounds himself with a very small group of people who know his thinking. But yeah, I mean, just to, to summarize, it's a big issue. They reached this compromise, but the fact that he's going to China in the next couple of weeks means that it's going to be an ongoing topic of debate. Of course, on this podcast, we're no strangers to the kinds of discussions surrounding Chinese investment in ports around the world. We've got Hambon Tota in Sri Lanka, we've got Darwin in Australia's north. In fact, I think a Chinese company is a majority owner of the port of Melbourne, uh, the southern end of Australia. But as you mentioned, Hamburg, the largest port in Germany, is not the only port where there's been significant Chinese investment in Europe, is it? No. Um, Chinese companies have been gradually, quite quickly over the past 10 years, building up ownership stakes in really important European ports. I'm in Belgium here and you've got Antwerp Port and Zeebrugge, which are merging, uh, both of which have Chinese ownership stakes in certain terminals. Duisburg, which is an inland port on the rivers Ruhr and Rhine in Germany, where I reported from last year's the end of the Belt and Road. Costco has a big stake there and they're sponsoring the construction of Europe's biggest inland port in Duisburg. When you go there, you can see all these Chinese containers coming up. It's amazing. Like it's, it's such a phenomenal place to see being loaded and unloaded and cars coming up the river from and heading down the river towards Eindhoven and so on. It's a Rotterdam. It's it's a it's a really interesting place to visit. You've got a Piraeus port in, in Athens, which of course infamously Costco is now the, the majority owner of. It hoovered up that asset during the financial crisis when the Greek economy was in disarray. That was actually one of the incidents that helped inspire the European foreign direct investment screening to protect critical infrastructure asset from purchases from, I guess, entities that they don't necessarily want to be owning crucial infrastructure in Europe. So yeah, I mean, it's not not like new that Chinese buyers are, are purchasing European port assets, but I guess as suspicion towards China has risen particularly this year, but over recent years, since the start of the pandemic, really, I think it's become more of a political issue. So that's where, that's where we are now. Uh, you know, and this story in Hamburg, as I said, has captured the imagination far more than, than any other, perhaps with the exception of the Piraeus port story in Greece. Well, Fimba, we've got the travel plans for Chancellor Olive Schulz. We've got the travel plans for French President Macron on his way to Beijing as well. But there's, of course, the big build-up. Here we are at the end of October. We are on our way to Bali in a few weeks' time for the meeting of the G20. I get the feeling there's going to be lots to talk about both beforehand, during and after. As ever, we'll follow you online, on Twitter. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Jared. Take care. Now, before I leave you, don't forget my colleague Mimi Lau is back with a new episode of our sister podcast, Inside China. 
This week, she's talking with our colleagues Wendy Wu and Mai Jun in Beijing about the outcome of the 20th Party Congress and just how many unofficial traditions and conventions were tossed out as Xi Jinping consolidated his power for his historic third term as president. Now, the oft-quoted phrase from Mao Zedong was that women hold up half the sky in China, but it looks very much like under Xi Jinping, they don't even get a token seat at the table in the Politburo. And yes, indeed, you will hear about that moment as former President Hu Jintao was helped from his seat and led out of the Great Hall of the People. Now, given this is the last Friday for October, let me run down a few anniversaries for October 28. On this day in 1886, the first ticker tape parade was held when the then US President Grover Cleveland dedicated a special gift from the people of France to the people of the United States. You might have heard of it. It's called the Statue of Liberty. Also on this day in 1962, Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev gave in to the US demands to halt the delivery of nuclear missiles to Cuba, thus bringing an end to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which we've since found out has been the closest the world has come so far to a nuclear war. And it was this day in 2015 when the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party announced it was officially ending the one-child policy that had been in place since 1979. Enough of the past. Let's talk about the present and the future. Keep up to date with our 24-hour newsroom via Twitter at SEMP News. You can keep up with our international award-winning video team via the SEMP channel on YouTube, as well as on our website at SEMP.com. Stay safe. Bye for now.